What is the best book on negotiation you've ever read? Many business readers have presumably read Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, and that could possibly be your favorite pick. What if I said there is another title that's far more practical? Ideas that you can put into practice right now. That book is Negotiation Simplified by Jim Riemann. We're going to talk about the core four concepts of negotiating, the best discussion I've ever read about goals in the context of negotiations, the three classes of people we may have to consider in any negotiation process, and dealing with bullies. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Jim Riemann, author of Negotiation Simplified, is coming up next. What is negotiating? Is it haggling? Or is it winning? Or is it something else? So we will find out in a minute. When I was reading Jim Riemann's bio, I was intrigued that he started his career as a litigator. And that's how we started this conversation. It was thrilling. It was satisfying and it was incredibly frustrating uh in the business world which is the world in which i live and in the business litigation world which is where i lived as a trial attorney honestly no case should go to trial or i shouldn't say no case there it's the very rare case that should go to trial sometimes you're going to trial to make a point to make law or it's a bet the company situation or one of the parties is just utterly intransigent. But you should be able to work through your issues and find a rational business solution without the cost and expense of litigation. And if you look at business litigation, the vast majority of cases, the super vast majority of cases settle at about five years. Why five years? Well, after five years, the individuals in the companies who have an emotional stake or a personal reputational issue involved in the dispute have moved on, either because they've been promoted or they've retired or they've gone to another. So new people come in, they look at it rationally, they look at the business analysis, they say, this is crazy, and they settle, um, which is part of the reason that I transitioned or segued from business litigation to business transactions, because I was settling cases. And by the way, before we hit record, you mentioned the terms competent, good, and great. And I thought that was brilliant because you said you were competent as a trial attorney, but you probably not, were not going to get to good and or great. And I just found that I think that's great for any person in any career. So you pivoted and I just, that, that's great that you had that insight. Thank you. So you went from that to... Business transactions, and then are we talking M and A? You know, M and A and uh, negotiating, and documenting complex deals for clients. You know, purchases of buildings, real estate development, uh, complex computer systems. Uh, I was involved in the purchase of one of the first computer systems for uh, a, a large company, large uh, large. Well, I can tell you, it was for the Walt Disney Company uh, for their call centers. 
um, and their order and uh, processing system. So, you know, complex systems for manufacturing or purchasing or uh, processing data. Um, and then I segued from there into the business world where I left the law completely and I was, uh, you know, I did that and then uh, had this opportunity in China, um, built my own business uh, after the Chinese company and came back to the law as an arbitrator and a mediator. Uh, and I sit on corporate boards, um, look for turnaround opportunities as a consultant or as a board director and uh, and teach. I am from the state of Missouri and we have a global listenership. So Missouri, a state right in the heart of America. Uh, I like to refer to myself as a hick, but I am a sophisticated uh, Missouri hick. So I had you to don't look- sound like what I've listened to a couple of you. You ask two good questions and your prep is too, too good. You ain't no hick. I, I had to look up ADR. So and you're probably thinking, oh, he is a hick. Uh, alter- no. Alternative uh, dispute resolution. And that's in one of your website domain names. Yeah. Uh, it, and maybe I'm the only one who did not know ADR before he looked it up, but could you explain ADR? Yeah. Uh, it's become a, a field in and of itself. Um, and it's non-litigation resolution of disputes, both business and non-business. Uh, so it includes arbitration, includes mediation. Inclo- there's these new things called dispute resolution boards. The whole point is, depending on where in the process, you break the lawsuit, what's the word I'm looking for, chain of events, and you stop the litigation, and you find a solution outside of litigation. Now, arbitration is effectively a private lawsuit, and I'm a huge advocate of arbitration for lots of reasons. Um, so that's a form of alternative business uh, alternative dispute resolution because you're not in court. So the short answer is any non-court process to resolve a dispute. I'm going to guess more than 50 to 60% of our listenership is listened to or read Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. We were talking about that before we uh, started recording. And I had to, I told you that I cannot remember any major points in his book. I can tell you it's good. It's a fun read. It's a provocative read. But your book, it's like I can read it and I can apply it right now. Even in the first chapter, I was already applying some of your ideas after I read the first chapter about a month ago. Even though some of the big ideas are, I would say, common sense, I'd never piece some of these things together. So let's hit some of these basics that I've been applying. And again, I love this book. It's called Negotiation Simplified. In the very beginning, which by the way, you, you, don't, you don't mess around. You get right to the point. You talk in the first chapter. I mean, in the first page, I'm calling them the core four concepts. I'm going to let you read them out if you want to. What are the core four in negotiation? Well, I, I, I very much appreciate that uh, that introduction and uh, uh, the, the reference. Uh, I haven't read uh, uh, the book that you described, but many have, and I hear positive things about it. So uh, hearing your uh, responses uh, is very gratifying. My goal in this, look, if, if you read 
20 books on negotiation, and I've read a lot of them. As a practical matter, all of us are saying essentially the same thing. What's different is how we describe it and whether we're able to craft the principles in a manner that's going to resonate and, and sit well with you. And the fact that I've done that well with you is, as I said, very gratifying. I try to simplify the process. And my goal with the book was to write something that was usable by the practitioner and written by a practitioner, myself being the practitioner. So I try to break it down. And I really thought about there's just four core issues. Long preamble to your question. I apologize. I'll be more succinct later on. The first is goals. You have to have real clarity and granularity with identification of goals. And if I've added anything to the literature of negotiation, it's that laser focus on goals that that I contribute. The second is preparation. We all talk about preparation, but how do you do it? What does it mean? Preparation is absolutely critical. The third is listening. Effective negotiators listen really well. And it and you need to break that down because there's three things to listen for. You need to hear what's being said to you. You need to hear yourself to assure that you're communicating that which you're trying to communicate. And then you have to hear the unspoken. So there's three elements of listening. And then the fourth piece, which is sort of similar to one of the elements of listening, is you have to be very self-aware. Because being self-aware is not just understanding what you're saying, but there's a whole lot of nonverbal communication going on as well. So you need to hone those four skills. And they're all pretty basic, and we're all doing it. But if you focus on those four skills and you hone them, especially understanding your goals, you're going to get a better result in your negotiations. Before we go any further, and again, this is right in the same chapter. In fact, it's on almost the same page. On the Kindle version, it just slides right into what negotiation is not. I feel guilty uh, not having broad enough questions throughout the book, but no, I want to bring up what it's not. Now, there are two that I love. Uh, feel free to share what negotiation is not, and I'll tell you what my two favorites are. I think you know what they are. Uh, I suspect you're going to say it's not about winning is one, and it's not haggling. I, I've already tweeted that several times over the past month. I, I just like, yes, that's agree. And we know some people that have been in the news without turning this into a political show. Uh, sometimes you get some bullies in and it is about winning, but no, win, win, or win, win, win. Uh, again, I, I love what it's not. Do, do you want to add to that? Yeah, let, let's, I mean, <laughs> We'll get into win, 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 and and, and frankly, I, I don't like the concept of win, win. Uh, and, I, and I knew that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I'll get there in a moment. But let's start with haggling. I don't know whether you watch the Pawn Stars. I'm a huge fan of the Pawn Stars. Um, it, many people think that negotiating is what happens in the flea market, where you go in and you see a trinket that has an objective value of $10. And the vendor offers $100 and you offer 10 cents and you split the difference and you keep splitting the difference until you come up at a price that's acceptable. That's haggling. That's not negotiating. Negotiating is a reasoned based process, operative 
word is process, where by understanding, and I'm going to drop three words that we'll talk about a lot, goals, needs, and wants of all of the parties, you come to an agreement that achieves the goals of all parties, that fulfills the needs of all parties, and satisfies as many of the wants of each of the parties as possible. So it's a process based upon a reasoned discussion and dialogue to achieve a result that meets the goals and the needs of the parties. And that was a faux pas a few minutes ago, because you even talk about it in the book. Why isn't it a win-win? Why is it that some negotiations aren't where the goal is not necessarily a win-win? We'll be right back. Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses for almost 10 years. I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. Each week, I create a new podcast, which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. It's not that it's not. I just think win-win is too simplistic. What you're really trying to do in a, in a, in a business negotiation, uh, and, and I want to make it very clear, all of my comments relate to business negotiations yes. because outside of that, there are other issues, is, an, is you're trying to achieve your goal. Uh, and, and, and I mentioned goals, needs, and wants, and it's important for, to understand those terms, especially if we're going to talk about them. So let me break it down. The goal is the end result. That's what you want to achieve. That's what, why we're doing this. The needs are all of the things that must be secured or achieved in order to achieve, in order to satisfy or meet the goal. The wants are everything that would be really nice to have, but aren't critical. So when you're in a business negotiation, you clearly have to understand what your goal is and what all of those elements that you must secure in order to meet your goal. And then you have to understand what it is for your counterpart. And then you try to reach a solution. So it's not win-win. I mean, I like to say you resolve your problems by resolving your counterpart's problems. And you're working together to reach an agreement that meets those, it satisfies all of those elements. That's much more complex than win-win. There's nothing wrong with win-win, but it's a little simplistic. It's not that you win this point, I win that point. It's that we are finding solutions that satisfy our needs. Speaking of that, that concept, that construct goals, needs, wants, I'm curious. I mean, you, you've been doing this for years and using a sports metaphor. You've got all this muscle memory. I mean, you're doing it without even thinking of it. And that's going to happen for us who practice these these concepts, th- this framework. But needs, goals, wants. I'm thinking of a piece of paper, legal size, cutting it in half and using those same three terms, goals, needs, wants. Me, 
the other party. I'm curious, I'm just nosy. How much time did you spend focusing on your half of the paper versus the other half of the paper before you started the negotiation conversation? Obviously, it's deal-specific. But I'll tell you what's interesting. The muscle memory, and that's a great term, applies to listening, and it applies to how you ask questions. It doesn't really apply to goal-setting. People forget about goal setting. Um, that takes discipline to do the process. Uh, let, let me tell a story just to make sure everybody's yes. on the same wavelength and understand what I talk about with goals and the granularity of goals, which is so important. It's the story of the orange. Uh, very famous story. If anyone has taken a negotiating class, they've almost heard this story, and it's used for a couple of purposes. Uh, it's I'm. It's used almost exclusively to ask or to illustrate the importance of the question why. And we'll talk about that later on if you wish. But the story goes like this. Uh, there's two daughters in the kitchen with the mother cooking a, uh, a meal for a family feast and, and celebration. There's a single orange on the table. Both daughters reach for the orange at the same time. A fight ensues. The mother, very wise, asks Daughter A, why do you need the orange? Daughter B, the same question. You can't split the orange. No, no King Solomon here. You can't split the baby. Each daughter needs the entire orange. Daughter A, I need the orange. I need the zest of an entire orange for the cake frosting that I'm making. Okay. Daughter B, why do you need the orange? I need the juice of an entire orange for my salad dressing. Solution is very easy. The story is used to illustrate every negotiator's favorite question, why? And by the way, if you think about it, that question, why, demonstrates what I was trying to articulate before. That is, it's a problem-solving exercise. I use the story to demonstrate the importance of goals. What was each daughter's goal? It wasn't to secure an orange. It was secure the juice or the peel of an entire orange. So you need to set your goal with the granularity, with the laser focus of juice or peel, not orange. So let's break that out. What was the goal? The goal of daughter A or daughter B is easier, was to create a wonderful salad dressing. What were her needs? That was her goal, the salad dressing. What did she need in order to make great salad dressing? The juice of an entire orange. What were her wants? If she could get more than that, that'd be fine. But the minimum need was an entire orange. So you need to understand what it is. And it takes discipline to stop and say, wait a minute, what am I trying to achieve here? A great salad dressing. Why am I fighting over the orange? Well, I don't need an orange. I need the juice. That's a process and a mental thought process that you need to go through. That's not actually not muscle memory. That takes discipline to do. The muscle memory, which you talk about, comes into how to listen, how to phrase questions, how to deal with various situations that arise. You make a point later in the book that questions are the answers, which you just brought up. Again, it's brilliant. Well, that, that's, well, 
that's a phrase that most lawyers are familiar with. Uh, you, you learn that first year of law school that the questions are the answers because the questions that you ask, you answer, and they are the genesis of additional questions. And the example I just gave with the orange is a perfect one. If you stop and go through the process, what am I tr- when you have the fight over the orange, what am I trying to achieve here? And the answer is, if you ask the question, then the answer is, well, I'm trying to achieve a a delicious salad dressing. Well, that leads the next question. Well, what do I need to make the salad dressing? You don't need an orange. You need the juice. And that process of asking a question, hearing the answer or learning the answer, that's going to derive more questions. It's going to narrow the focus. I use in the book, and, and, and I think about it this way as well, uh, the metaphor of a spiral where you keep, as you go around the circle each time and it narrows, you're zooming in on exactly what it is. So th- th- those questions are going to focus you and give you the information that you need to craft a solution. And by the way, as we talk about the questions are the answers, that's in the context of after goal setting, the prep work, the preparation stage. It, 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 no, it's, it's not after goal setting. It is part of the goal setting process. So, you know, when we talk about preparation, we're talking about before the negotiation begins. And there's two elements of it. And, and you, you highlighted it earlier. There's preparation and understanding yourself and your side. And then there's preparation and understanding the other side, or what do I need in order to understand the other side? Because if you're thinking about a negotiation as a problem-solving solution, both sides want to achieve a deal. Otherwise, you wouldn't be having a conversation. Both sides have problems. So you have to identify the problems, and then you have to find solutions that both sides can live with. Uh, So your preparation is understanding yourself as much as it is understanding your counterpart. And by the way, you've done something very important and I just used an important word. You haven't talked about, and this is one of the reasons I don't like win-win. You haven't talked about the other side as a competitor, an adversary, competition. It's your counterpart. You have two parties trying to make a deal. That means that you're both interested and both sides, they don't need to win, but they have to have their needs and their wants and go satisfied in order to achieve their goals. Again, great point. And I do appreciate the correction. Not a correction. I was, I was pointing out something that you did, I thought, very well. <laughs> the three classes of people. So we've got decision makers, we've got influencers, and then we've got the negotiators. That's, that's a big deal. And it may seem so elementary, but as I read it, twice, a third time, and a fourth time, I'm thinking, no, this is not elementary. This is more than found. I mean, this is very important, and it's something we can forget, right? Yeah, people, when you negotiate, it's if you're going to make a deal, the deal has to be approved by those who have authority. Uh, first of all, when you start talking about companies and people think about companies, companies aren't don't make decisions. Companies are people and their manifestations of the people. So who are the decision makers within the within that entity? Uh, usually it's not the negotiator. Sometimes it is, but usually it's not. So you have to identify the, the decision makers. Then what's going to 
be determinative to the decision maker and what's the mindset of the decision maker. And often the decision maker is impacted or the decision maker's decision is impacted by what I call influencers. Those are people or int- that don't have a direct decision-making capability, but are going to, I like the, I use the word influence, are going to influence the thinking and the decision of the decision-maker. Example, the board of directors of the CEO, uh, the shareholders, uh, in a family business, uh, and this is one of my favorite examples, the, you've got a family business, uh, the second generation, son or daughter is now running the business. Uh, I'm going to assume uh, generationally that the founder of the business was dad, not mom, but uh, you know, let's say it, it was dad. Dad's still alive. Even though dad has given up complete control of the business, if you don't think that successor son or daughter isn't thinking about how dad would view this transaction you're probably naive so they don't have decisional authority but they have a significant impact on the decision making process of the decision maker so as you set through how do you craft arguments and how you resolve the needs of your counterpart you need to think about influencers because they are impacting the decision-making process. Have you ever come across a situation where the goals, needs, and wants are a little bit different amongst the decision-makers, the the influencers, and the negotiators? Have you ever encountered that? Always. Always. Well, there's usually congruence, but... It, but not complete, but they're not parallel. And more often than not, they, they, they're separate um, and they do separate. So, for example, let's go back to the, the family business. Uh, you have those that want short term returns and those who want long term returns. Everybody wants the business to do well, but one owner may want a pile or need a pile of cash tomorrow. Whereas the other, they're in a cash situation. They're thinking about their next generation. So the goal, success and future and profitability of the business is the same, but the influencers, those are telling the CEO, the decision maker, buy, don't buy or sell, don't sell. They're different. And the reason I had to throw out that question is because I bought my fair share of businesses, $10 million and under, for a lot of my clients over the past 20 years, well, guess what? The person you are working with, you're trying to do a deal with, they are the decision maker, they are the negotiator, and by default, the influencer. So I'm always curious when you do have those three distinctive parties, now you've now you're managing it's a hard well, it's yeah, harder. Let's go into the workout world, which which you live in and, and many of your uh, interviews discuss. You have the interest of the bank. True. You have the interest of the shareholders. You have the interester of the debtors, not the bank, but the vendor debtors. You have the customers, you have the employees. Usually they're similar in terms of they want they want the company to succeed, but how that happens and when it happens are usually very different. And all of those different 
desires, I'm not going to use, I'm going to use a neutral word, word of those individuals are going to impact the decision-making process of the decision-maker. Grids, the matrices, and the quantitative analysis. And I don't have the book open in front of me, but there's one chapter specifically where you've got just, it's page after page of these matrices. And I just want to make a point. They are simple, but they are outstanding. Thank you. I, I could do an oral one uh, that works. It, the point that I'm trying to make and the reason I set forth those matrices is the difference between a deal and no deal is whether all of your needs have been achieved. The difference between a deal, a good deal, and a great deal is the difference between the number and the value of the wants that you secure. So if you don't have all of your needs met, there's not going to be a deal. And therefore, your goal is not going to happen. So what the matrices try to do is, and it's a tool that I actually use and many, many good negotiators use. It's not just a learning tool. Something I actually use in the real world is you identify all of your wants. And then you value your wants because at the end of the day, there's going to be horse trading. I describe the negotiation process as a two-act play. It's really a three-act play if you think about preparation before the play starts as act one. But assume that that's preparation. It's before the play starts. Act one of the play is learning. What you're doing during the negotiation process is you're learning what you're confirming your beliefs as to what the goal of your counterpart is. You're either confirming or learning what the needs of your counterpart are. And then you are learning or confirming the wants of your counterpart. And here's the critical piece, the importance or the value of each want. For yourself, during the preparation process, you should have understood and identified each and all of your needs and each and all of your wants and the importance or the value of each of your wants. And you lay them out. And then you find during the learning process, each of the wants of your counterpart and their value. And then you go to act two of the play or of the process and you, you, you're doing horse trading, but you're doing it based upon reason and an understanding the value. So here's a very, very simple example. You've, uh, you're about to be hired in a new position uh, and, you know, the decision you want to, they want to hire you, you want to, you want to be hired. Let's make this very simple. There's four elements to the negotiation. Now you're, you're negotiating your job contract. Issue one, salary. Issue two, location, where you're going to work because this company has multiple offices and multiple locations. Issue three, start date. Issue four, vacation time. Okay. You ascribe, I like one to 10. Others people use different valuations, but I like a nice one to 10 valuation. Keep it simple. I'm a lawyer. I got 10 fingers. So that's as high as I can count. Let's just say salary is valued in terms of how important it is to each of you and your counterpart of seven. Salary is really important and it's equal. So we're going to take salary off the table. Location company wants you to work either in Chicago or in New York. Your preference is to be in Chicago, but here in New York would be fine. 
The company's preference would be New York, but you know they could live with Chicago. So we're going to call it five and seven reversed, okay? Start date. You've had some time off. If you get another 30 to 60 days off, you'd be very happy. You could use it in, on a beach somewhere. Doesn't matter whether you start tomorrow or you start uh, in 60 days. But your employer, they have a project. They need you tomorrow. Start date is really critical to them. So you put start date one because you're happy to start tomorrow or take some time off. Uh, Your employer puts it at 10. Last element, vacation time. Vacation time for the employee, it's two weeks. It's typically two weeks, three weeks. Eh, It's a cost, but they'll call it a seven. So for the employer, it's a five. You, on the other hand, have had a vacation planned with your family for six months. It's really important to you. And by the way, it's three weeks, not two. Okay, so you're going to put that as a seven or an eight. Now, just look at that matrix that we have. Guess what? Start date, you're going to trade that for the vacation time. So what you're doing is, and you've learned during the act one, the learning process of the negotiation, how important that start date is to your employer. You've also learned that the location is important, but not terribly important. So you'll pick up that extra week for the location, and you'll start now because that's really important. So what you're doing is you're trading elements of the negotiating elements or things that are of low value to you things that are of high value to you, but low value to your counterpart. That's how you create value, simplistically win-win. But for the reasons I've said, I don't like win-win. That's how you create value and create a great deal for both parties. Quick question, and it may have a longer answer. You do have a section in the book about bullies. Luckily, I've not had to deal with many bullies when it comes to negotiating. I can think of maybe one. In fact, as I went through your book, I had to, I knew there's one that came to mind real quickly. And then there are maybe a couple others, but it was way back. And I just thought, this is good. This is healthy. Tips, advice, or just encouragement. Again, we're using your core four suggestions on how to stay the course when dealing with these brutal bullies that sometimes I just feel like it's talking to a brick wall. What's the use? The first step in dealing with a bully and goes back to the questions or the answers is ask yourself, is this really bullying? Depending upon, this may just be a very outspoken, loud, aggressive personality who doesn't realize that he or she is a bully in the international arena, in the cross-cultural arena, what a New Yorker would consider tame. And I'm using stereotypes and I apologize, um, but stereotypes, anyway, uh, this is a stereotype and it's not meant, but 
in Japan, where it's a very, the cultures in to be very refined, soft-spoken, understated, the standard New Yorker might appear as a bully. So the first question, and, and I apologize for the use of stereotypes, I understand the issues with stereotypes, but it will illustrate the concept, which is the, the goal here. So the first thing to do when you are encountering what you are perceived as bullying is ask yourself, is this really bullying? Sometimes it's not. The second thing to do is if you determine that, yeah, in fact, it is bullying, ask why. Why is this person being a bully? Usually, it's to overcome or to obscure an insecurity, either an insecurity of the individual or a problem within the deal, and it's intended to distract. So you, once you determine that is bullying, the biggest mistake and the only hard answer that I have is do not be intimidated. Do not permit the bully to believe that you're intimidated because that's showing success for the bullying. But other than that, you have to ask questions as to why is this occurring? And just as I said, the questions are the answers. The answer to why is this happening is going to give you the information that you need to decide how to act next. So for example, the person is just a jerk, and this is the way they work. If you're in a business transaction, you need to ask yourself, well, is this the nature of the company or is this an individual? If it's the nature of the company, then I would urge you to do a risk and a cost analysis because there is a cost associated with a difficult transaction. So you need to go through that process so you can decide, maybe I don't want to do this deal. If that's not the issue if they're trying to cover up something, distract you. Why? What, what do they not want you to focus on? And then, of course, you focus on it. So dealing with a bully, identify, is it bullying? Identify or learn why it's occurring. And that's going to give you the solution to move forward. And by the way, much of what you're saying is in the book. And I again, I wanted to bring it out. And as I'm listening to you, it's like, I know you're speaking from experience. Has that been some of your most frustrating uh, negotiations in the past I, or not? One of the things in the book that I'm most proud of, if I have eight individuals who are absolute luminaries and superstars in their field that provided short anecdotes. Um, and one of my favorite is an individual you had on your show a few uh, weeks ago, Jim Shine, who's a, uh, a workout guru. He's a professor at the Kellogg School. And he tells a, each story was intended to illustrate a particular concept that his concept was bullied and his is perfect. It was great. Um, Can you share it? Just the highlights of it? It's yeah, outstanding. He... he, he he was uh, an attorney in a, in a law firm. One of the firm's clients was in a uh, situation where the bank for, had decided to um, unilaterally and unexpectedly cut off all financing. He gets called into a meeting. There's 30 people who arrange their, ta their chairs in a horseshoe 
with the open end of the horseshoe. By the way, they're all in very, uh, very uh, ergonomic, soft, comfortable chairs, and they leave him in a simple steel chair at the open end of this horseshoe, and they start peppering him with questions. And he sits there and listens to the questions for about 30, 45 minutes, and then asks one very simple question that silences everybody and demonstrates that their thinking is completely wrong. Um, the bottom line is he wasn't intimidated by it at all. And he asked a question to understand why was this all happening? And of course, the answer to the question was that this is the wrong way to go. So um, that, that's Jim's story. It's a great story. He uh, expresses it brilliantly in the, in the book. And uh, yeah, a good example, the que- whenever you deal with bullying, one, don't be intimidated by it. Uh, and second, understand why it's happening so that you can use it. And Jim does not strike me as someone with an overpowering, authoritative personality or persona. Jim Shine, the other Jim. Ex- exactly, the other Jim. And as, as, he's, as, as he's relating that story in these vignettes in your book, and I think what you just said is so insightful and perceptive, he was not intimidated and that may be the key is do not be intimidated by these people. There's, there's another anecdote in the book uh, written by David Rank. David Rank was the acting ambassador to uh, China for the U.S. Uh, and when he just uh, was succeeded as acting ambassador, um, the Chinese made a, a classic bullying move for him. Uh, his response to it was perfect. But the answer to that one was it was a play that was anticipated and he had preparation for the answer and preparation as how to deal with it. I was going to say, if you don't mind, I want to read one of the quotes by David Huebner. Did I say that correctly? Huebner. He, Huebner. He says, whatever one's field or function, one of the most important skills to develop and one of the most difficult is to hear what is not being said. You said that about 15, 20 minutes ago on listening, hear what's not being said. And I've, I, this is probably one of my favorite lines in all of those stories of those individuals. I, I just love it. I know we're repeating it, but I, what a skill to have. What, what's not being said that needs to be heard? And, and feel free to add to that if you want to. Well, it's it's one of my favorite quotes in the book as well. And uh, uh, David is a, a brilliant guy. He was the uh, U.S. ambassador to New Zealand, appointed by Obama. He currently serves as a uh, arbitrator of complex commercial disputes. Brilliant guy and, and a lovely guy. Uh, let me give it hearing what's unspoken. People say, when I say that, people they sort of look at me saying, "Huh?" Let me give you a good example. Uh, we have a supply chain issue right now. Uh, the back ordering for cars, if you want to buy a new car, it's gotten better recently, but go back to, uh, 12 months, there was a long, long back order for cars. There's just no availability. So you're, you're in the dealer's showroom. You're seeing the, the, the vehicle you want. And the salesperson is telling you about all the wonderful assets of the car. And he's talking about the mileage of the car and the performance of the car and everything else about the car. And he's even giving you a great price. What's he not talking about? Which, by the way, because you've been 
prepared, you understand, he's not talking about delivery date. How come he's not talking about that? You can only hear the unspoken if you're prepared, which goes back to the criticality of preparation. But if you're prepared, you understand what the various issues are. And if it's not being addressed, that's usually a really big clue. Example, the automotive story. We could keep talking more about this book, but I also want to make sure we sell some of your books. (laughs) Thank Uh, you. (laughs) So I think we've hit not all, but many of the big ideas. I'll give you a chance to bring, is there something I should have brought up that we did not? Managing emotions. Because? Negotiation in the world that I operate and any good negotiation needs to be rational. It's a rational problem-solving process. Emotion impairs rational decision-making. So the biggest mistakes that happen is when emotion is driving whatever answers one is giving. or And frankly, emotion impedes effective listening. So one needs to divorce oneself from one's emotions to be a really effective, skilled negotiator. That's tough. Plug the heck out of your work. Uh, <laughs> and, and in the show notes, we'll have, I think I've identified three links. Obviously, one is for negotiation simplified, uh, but we have your, your Riemann ADR. Is it .com or .org? .com. .com. Uh, we'll, we'll have these links in the show notes, but plug the heck out of what you're doing today. Well, I, I'm doing three things. I serve as a, a mediator and an arbitrator of complex business disputes. As an arbitrator, I'm effectively a private judge. Uh, and and it, in arbitration, there's either a single arbitrator or three uh, arbitrators. We, we will decide disputes that the parties cannot decide themselves. Uh, as a mediator, it's just that. I'm facilitating and helping the parties reach a business solution and a business settlement of a dispute. So I serve as an arbitrator and a mediator. That's what ADR stands for, Alternative Dispute Resolution. That's my primary job. I teach negotiation. Uh, I give private lectures on negotiation to companies, and uh, and uh, and I serve as a consultant negotiating. Uh and I sit on corporate boards and uh, I do a lot of workout work and work with highly distressed companies because that's a, uh, most of that, it, all of the skills that we've just talked about of a good negotiator are the skills that you need to apply to identify. And, and I see Mark shaking his head. This is audio only, but he does workout work uh, and uh, works with distressed companies are the same skills that you need to be an effective leader and to achieve an effective turnaround. If you think about it, it's understanding with real clarity what your goal is, having preparation as to, one, identify what that goal is and how to execute the plan to achieve that goal, listening to your employees, your colleagues, your investors, your creditors, your all of the stakeholders, and then being self-aware. Same skills. I have a nosy question. Uh-oh. When you are teaching... And when you have an audience mainly of CEOs, when they are raising their hand or when they come up to you after a session, what's the one thing, what's, what's a common theme or a common question that you hear over and over? I am very curious. 
I do only executive ed teaching. Uh, I do I do guest lecturing in, in law schools and business schools, but my teaching is at the executive ed or at a corporate environment. Um, and most of it is at the University of Oxford Said Business School. So we get extraordinary people through there. Um, our last program, uh, you know, we had the Minister of Finance of a, a major African country. Uh, we've had the uh, head senior negotiator for uh, NATO. We've had extraordinary people through that program. The most common question individually is the one that you asked, how do you deal with a bully? Really? Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, bullying is, is tough. Uh, the more nuanced questions are, tell me again why goal setting is so important. Because it's not, so, I mean, once we go through it, obviously they get it, but just reading material or hearing it about it initially, people don't really focus on the importance of us understanding goals. I mean, I say goals drive everything. Um, and actually I get, I get kitted at Oxford. They call me Mr. Goal uh, because I spend so much focusing on them. But if you think about it, it does. And when you understand that what you want is to make a delicious salad dressing, not to get an orange, think about how that epiphany is going to change everything that you do and say during the negotiation. I know you're a reader. I saw one of the books you held up earlier when we were in the, the green room. Uh, favorite books, some of your favorites. And it doesn't have to be business either. I read for escapism, and I really enjoy science fiction. Uh, so I read, I, I call them junk novels. I took a course in, in college called The Junk Novel, where we went through... We had three classes a week. We read three books a week. But, you know, it, it was light stuff from um, from uh, Sherlock Holmes stories and Ross Perot to uh, romance literature. There's certain genres. Uh, so I read for escapism, and none of the books that I, I would identify for my escapism are really terrific, other than I really do like Orson Scott uh, Card, um, uh, who wrote Ender's Game and, and his series of books. The, the important book that I like and I recommend to people, and they just he just came out with a new version of it. It's called Influence by uh, Cialdini, mm -hmm. uh, and it's the most brilliant. And by the way, uh, my accolade and uh, is is much less relevant. Almost everyone who reads it, who's well known and well under, uh, well respected in multiple fields, describe it as the most brilliant yes. explanation of how you can influence people and influence people's decisions. And he has eight, he just came up with a ninth level of influence uh, and how do, he identifies them. And then he describes them so that you understand how to use them. Uh, and I think the book is brilliant. And if you've read it before, it's worth reading the new version uh, because he adds the, uh, the new influence element, which is called uh, influence. I, Instant I, influence. I could not get into persuasion. That is his, one of his newer books. I just thought, you don't, you don't need to read. You don't need another book. Just either keep updating influence. Like you said, he has a, but persuasion, I could not get into it. Have, have, I'm just curious. Have you read that title? No, I, no, I, I haven't. Uh, I've, I've heard other people say the same thing that you have. I, many of these books are so academic. 
they're they're boring. And and the reason I wrote my book is I found bits and pieces of negotiating books absolutely brilliant. But the entire book, or they've been so simplistic, they've been utterly worthless. And, and I tried to find the balance, which is why I wrote my, uh, wrote my book. Uh, but another negotiating book that is, it's 40 plus years old now, but it's absolutely brilliant, well worth it, is getting to yes. If you're going to read one book that's not my own, I'll be, uh, I'll be egotistical. If it's not my own, read getting to yes. Getting to yes is absolutely brilliant. Sir, I need to nitpick one thing you said. One thing, nitpick. Do I have permission? Of course. You said you said junk novels. There's no such thing. We have a guest coming on. Uh, it will be after this show, but we have a someone who wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review, and she talks about uh, reading literature. And her name is uh, Dr. Christine Seifert, and she has research that shows that those of us who read novels, literature, we're more empathetic. Uh, We tend to have more creative minds. So I just want to say that fiction you're reading, that's making you, I'm going to (laughs) say, better at what you do. So I take, I will take a small issue, sir, with use the word junk in front of literature. Well, in defense, the course that I took in college, and it was a great school, uh, was taught by a guy named George Stade, who was a very, very well uh, regarded, uh, he was a, a tenured member of the faculty, uh, but additionally, he wrote for the New York Times as a book reviewer. And the name of his course was The Junk Novel. So in self-defense, I'm, I'm simply repeating the name of his, of his course, which was frankly the best course I ever took in college. It was great fun. Fair enough. Fair enough. Jim Riemann, this is a huge, huge honor. I, I can't thank you enough. And you've brought us this great book on negotiation. I loved it. By the way, I've read it twice. Uh, so, and it won't be the last time I read it. I've also been, a lot of the CEOs I work with required reading. So this is a book that has a very long, unlimited shelf life. Well, well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a real honor. You've asked, uh, from my perspective, wonderful questions. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Jim Raymond, the author of Negotiation Simplified. Again, you can learn more about Jim's work at ReimannADR.com. That's R-E-I-M-A-N-1-N-A-D-R.com. ReimannADR.com. We need to call this a wrap. Coming soon on CFO Bookshelf, the story of Harry Guggenheim. Newsday once dubbed him the godfather of flight. Also, we'll be hearing about the man Mary Childs calls the Bond King, Bill Gross. And then later this month, We'll find out why the business behind BlackBerry essentially fell off the face of the earth. These shows and more are coming up here on CFO Bookshelf. I'm Mark Gandy. Until next time.